Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Regular listeners to the program know that each Friday, I do a survey of the week's news with my co-host, Natasha Smith. But these midweek Ministry Watch Extra episodes are just that, something a bit extra, a bit different, that we hope will help you understand a bit more fully what we're up to here at Ministry Watch, what we do, and why and how we do it. An important project of Ministry Watch over the past year has been the creation of a new book, Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. Ministry Watch published about 500 copies of that book last fall, and we quickly uh, sold out of those books. Uh, Now I'm pleased to report a new version of the book is out from Wild Blue Press. It's currently available in print and ebook formats, both from Wild Blue and from Amazon and other online retailers. I recently did an interview about the book with my friend Bill Feltner of the Pilgrim Radio Network. It's one of the great Christian radio networks in the country, serving millions of people in the mountain west of this country. The interview was for Bill's His People program. When I got a chance to listen to that interview, I thought it captured what the book is about and what Ministry Watch is about in ways that I wanted to share with you. So this week's Ministry Watch Extra episode is my conversation with Pilgrim Radio Network's Bill Feltner as we discuss our newly republished book, Faith-Based Fraud. Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Warren Cole Smith on Faith-Based Fraud and how to guard against it. It's fraud that uses your relationship or a common community or a common belief system as a way to get people to let their guard down, to trust people that shouldn't be trusted as much as they are. Um, So that's, in general, what I call faith-based fraud. Warren Cole Smith, next. Ministry Watch just released a new book written by its president, Warren Cole Smith, titled Faith-Based Fraud. It explores why religion has played such a prominent role in financial fraud and how donors can avoid becoming victims. In telling the tragic and at times fascinating stories in the book, Warren hopes to build up and not tear down the evangelical church, stressing the need for basic principles like transparency and accountability. Warren Cole Smith is a longtime journalist, author of many books, and he previously served as a vice president at both the World News Group and at the Colson Center. Warren, tell us the background to why you wrote Faith-Based Fraud. I wrote the book because, for one thing, I really believe that um, it's the responsibility of the Christian church to care about the purity of the church and that uh, we need to um, care about both the theology and the doctrine of the church, but also the behavior of the people within the church. And I think that's especially true for church leaders. Um, Sometimes we 
don't like to sort of face this reality. Uh, I especially don't like to face this reality when I'm looking in the mirror, Bill. But but God really does call church leaders to a higher standard of behavior. And um, unfortunately, um, many church leaders don't uh, adhere to that higher standard of behavior. I want to be really, really quick to add, though, that the vast majority of Christian leaders in this country, pastors, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, um, are living sacrificial lives. They're living godly lives. And I really uh, want to make sure that I don't forget those people. They are truly the silent majority uh, in the evangelical world. But whenever we have some bad actors, those are the ones that get noticed by the media. And um, that tends to sort of uh, sully the reputation of everybody that's involved in ministry. So I thought that if I could write a book that would sort of present uh, a face to the world, especially to a secular, cynical, skeptical world, that we too, we Christians also care about the peace and purity of the church and that we're not going to turn a blind eye when we see sin within our own camp, that that would not only have the impact, hopefully, in God's providence of cleaning up um, those problems within the church, but also uh, restoring the credibility of the church to that secular, cynical, and skeptical world. And to what extent, Warren, is this new book, Faith-Based Fraud, complementary to to what you do at Ministry Watch? Well, it's absolutely complimentary. Uh, in fact, I'll just mention um, briefly, Bill, if you could allow me an aside. I was talking to um, some of my former colleagues at World Magazine uh, today, and um, and I said, I think World Magazine is, if it's not in every page, it's on every chapter. And I would think that the same thing is probably, you know, true, at least to a lesser degree of what I'm doing now at Ministry Watch. Um, yeah, I've been doing investigative journalism either here at Ministry Watch or previously at World Magazine, and then at the newspapers that I owned uh, back in the early 2000s and late 90s as well. So I've been doing this work for a long time. I've been covering um, everyone from Jim and Tammy Baker all the way up to the present time where we've got, you know, we've had Jerry Falwell Jr. and other scandals that have been happening within literally the last few weeks. So a lot of the material in that book was originally reported for either Ministry Watch or World Magazine. But obviously, I've had to reshape that material a great deal, do a lot of additional research before I could put it into book form. Well, as we begin talking about these people and issues, Warren, uh, and I've asked you this in the past, but I think it bears repeating, if you would respond to the person who might be a little uncertain about all of this or, you know, we're airing the Christian community's dirty laundry, won't it harm the church in the world's eyes? Well, I don't think it will, and I'll tell you why. Um, they already know this about us. They already know. They're already skeptical. They're already cynical. Uh, they already don't trust us, and they think that we're covering this stuff up. Very little of the information that you'll find in faith, faith-based fraud in particular. Now, sometimes we do report, in fact, I, I hope lots of times we report information that is new uh, at, at Ministry Watch when we're doing daily breaking news. But a great deal of the information in this book, Faith-Based Fraud, is not new. It's stuff that everyone knows. But what I'm trying to do is to say, listen, what caused it? What were the systems and structures that were in those ministries or in those 
those churches that allowed this bad behavior to flourish? What can we do as Christians, as donors, as ministry leaders, whether that be a pastor, an elder, a deacon, or maybe someone where we lead a nonprofit organization, what can we do to prevent this stuff from happening? Uh, Not only to protect the peace and purity of the church, which is, I use that language, peace and purity, because it's kind of ancient language, but I think it's really important language that we recover, but also to protect the ministers themselves. I don't think anybody that's caught in scandal, uh, or let me say it another way, very few people who are caught in a scandal within the church began their careers thinking that it was going to end in scandal, or they didn't wake up most days and say, what can I do to mess up today? What can I do to dishonor the gospel today? What can I do to victimize people today? I don't think most people wake up saying that about themselves or about their ministries. But over time, if systems and structures of accountability are not of, of accountability are not put in place, it really those things can really happen. So it protects the the donors and the recipients of um, the ministry of those ministries, and also protects the leaders uh, as well. So I guess my short answer to your question, uh, Bill, is no. I don't think that it damages the credibility of the church. I think that damage has been done, and what we need to do is recover the credibility of the church. And a side story here, and one that you touch on in the book, is the role of Christian journalism. You believe that journalists, the Christian journalists, really have a biblical mandate that this is what you've applied here. Well, I do think that the Christian journalist is in a unique position because not only do they bring the tools of journalism um, to uh, the ministry world, but a Christian journalist, and I and I use that language specifically, I mean someone who is truly a Christian, truly born again, truly someone who is seeking God and is trying to build in their own lives and in their own way of thinking a true biblical worldview, I think that person has a double advantage, that they have a level of spiritual discernment and biblical understanding that in some ways should, should and can provide an early warning system uh, for troubles that might take place in the ministry. The way I say it in the book is that often sexual scandal or financial scandal or bad behavior of other kinds is often downstream from theological error. And it and it will sometimes take the Christian journalist to understand where that theological error is, and they can do that long before a secular journalist, and maybe they would be able to do it when a secular journalist wouldn't be able to do it at all, just because they're not equipped with those spiritual eyes and ears, you might say. And the major issue here is accountability. What is that? And how do you hope you will bring accountability to this particular question? Yeah, and I would say the two pillars of this book, and you've touched on one of them, are transparency and accountability. But since you've asked about accountability, I'll start there. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's happened, um, Bill, within the um, evangelical world over the last 50 to 75 years is that structures of accountability have broken down. Um, that uh, if you go back to, say, the you know, mid 
mid-70s, uh, which is, well, what, 40 to 50 years ago now, doesn't I remember the 70s so vividly that it's hard to imagine that it was 40 or 50 years ago. But you would, the most of the largest churches in this country were um, a part of a denomination, that um, there were systems of, of accountability built in. Uh, if there was a pastor doing something wrong, there would be elders and deacons or maybe denominational leaders that um, were watching that person's behavior um, that could uh, do things, for example, like fire that pastor or that uh, leader who was doing something wrong. Um, Now, sometimes those systems and structures didn't work the way they should have worked. We obviously saw that in the case of the Catholic uh, clergy sex scandal, for example. Um, And there were other problems with the church in the 1970s. I'm not trying to pretend that that was a golden age for uh, church leadership by any stretch of the imagination. But my point is, is that there were some built-in systems of accountability that tended to kind of regulate the behavior of people that were involved in ministry and church leadership. Today, the largest churches in this country are mostly independent churches. They're non-denominational churches. Um, I wrote, a, and in fact, I devoted an entire chapter to Mars Hill Church, which is a was a large church in Seattle that ultimately completely dissolved um, after some of the articles that I wrote for World Magazine. Those articles are recounted in that story uh, is recounted in Faith-Based Fraud. The elders at Mars Hill Church were staff members at the church. Um, They were not independent in any way, shape, or form. It was highly unlikely, for example, that the elders of that church who could be fired by the pastor of that church were going to hold that pastor accountable. Um, Whereas a more typical, more biblical structure would be deacons and elders didn't work for the church, and they could, in fact, offer some oversight and some accountability for the pastor uh, of that church. So that's just one quick example of how uh, things have changed over the last 30 or 40 years in terms of structure and accountability within large uh, churches. I should also mention that both churches and ministries have gotten dramatically larger in the last few years. Um, World Vision, much more than a billion dollars in revenue. Compassion International will probably go over a billion dollars this year. At Ministry Watch, we publish a list of the um, 600 largest Christian ministries in this country. And Bill, we have scores of um, these, I would say dozens of ministries that have more than $100 million a year. That's a phenomenon that you just didn't see uh, as recently as 20 years ago. So the one pillar you just explained, Warren, is accountability. The other is transparency. You know, one of the things that we um, that we advocate for, um, in addition to accountability, which tends to be structures and who's responsible to whom and what sort of you know power does uh, one person have, and in some ways, um, you know, tr- accountability is about is about dispersing power and making sure that power doesn't get too concentrated in the hands of one or a few individuals. Transparency is a little bit different in that transparency gives power to um, folks outside the ministry, to donors, for example, um, who I believe, should have a great deal of financial information about an organization. How much is the leadership getting paid? Where does that money go? How much of that money is being spent on administrative and fundraising costs, for example? These are just, I I mentioned a few items to um, 
as as examples of many, many more items that I think donors should pay attention to before they give money uh, to a ministry. And um, unfortunately, in this day and age, because ministries have gotten so large, because many ministries now uh, classify themselves as churches, and that means they don't have to release certain financial information to the public, it's becoming increasingly difficult to have that level of transparency uh, that people on the outside need looking in, donors and others. And you know, Bill, there's an old saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so I think transparency is uh, in the ministry world, that sunlight that we need to disinfect uh, ministries and churches uh, that will kind of keep things in the light. And since I mentioned that expression in the light, I might even also add that that's biblical, right? We as Christians are supposed to be people of the light. So we should actively advocate for uh, sunlight, for transparency uh, in the Christian ministries that we lead and also the ministries that we donate money to. Well, the book is Faith-Based Frauds, Some of the Greatest Religious Frauds of Our Time and What We Can Learn from Them. I'm talking with uh, the author Warren Cole Smith, who is president of Ministry Watch, has a, a decades-long uh, background in journalism, and uh, the stories that you find here in the book are those that he's covered for publications like World Magazine. Well, Warren, uh, for definition, what is faith-based fraud, and can you give us an example or two? Well, yeah, I, you know, faith-based fraud uh, would be uh, any fraud that uses religion as a tool or a mechanism uh, to create that fraud. Um, people that are not so concerned with religion, um, I might um, say, for example, accountants, forensic accountants, or fraud investigators, or people that might investigate crimes of a more um, secular nature, but financial in nature, sometimes call it affinity fraud. Um, it's, it's fraud that uses your relationship or a common community or a common belief system as a way to get people to let their guard down, to trust people that shouldn't be trusted as much as they are. Um, so that's, in general, what I call faith-based fraud. And, you know, there's a wide variety of kinds of faith-based fraud. You asked Bill, for example, or for, for me to give you some examples. Um, I mean, I could just go through, the, um, through the, the table of contents of the book. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker in the PTL scandal of the 19... Uh, 70s and into the 80s is an example that we use early in the book. That's more of a financial fraud. There's a fraud that many people don't know much about today. Um, the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy was run by a man named John Bennett. That was a fraud that took place in the 1990s. It's amazing to me how many people have forgotten about that situation, but it was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal whenever it broke in the mid-90s. Um, it involved over 500 hundred million dollars. At the time, it was considered to be one of the largest, if not the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Now, since then, we've had people like Bernie Madoff come along that have that have made that fraud uh, seem small by comparison. If I could just, just jump in for just a minute, and, and you said a Ponzi scheme, and I'm wondering, of course, people will wonder, what is a Ponzi scheme? And in your book, actually, you tell what you call the amazing story of Charles Ponzi. And I'm wondering if we could... Uh, Take a quick look at him, and, and what is that scheme that he 
brought uh, to the public's uh, awareness. Yeah, you bet. Well, I'm glad you asked that, Bill. In fact, I apologize for moving so quickly and, and going right past that. But yeah, that's that's really the first uh, chapter in the book uh, after defining what faith-based fraud is, is to look at Charles Ponzi. Charles Ponzi was, a, was an Italian immigrant who... Um, it's a fascinating but fairly complicated story that I won't uh, recount in great detail here. But he used these things called international reply coupons, which um, were a tool that the government had set up. They were sort of like prepaid postage stamps that um, that people could buy and put in their letters whenever they sent a letter overseas so that the recipient of that letter could reply to your letter without it costing them anything. And um, they, were, they were designed to um, be... Um, uh, like I say, to facilitate uh, international commerce, but Charles Ponzi used them to um, create this elaborate scheme to defraud people of millions and millions of dollars. And this happened, uh, by the way, in the you know teens and twenties uh, in in this country. And subsequent pyramid schemes like this have been called Ponzi schemes named after Charles Ponzi. And I start the book with the story of Charles Ponzi because for several reasons. Number one is that it's an early and famous example of this affinity fraud that I talked about. In particular, he targeted the Italian Catholic community of the Boston area. So again, there was a religious component to this fraud. And it also allows us to talk about some of the big issues that are involved in this kind of fraud, which is, which include things like how do you get how do you get people to trust you? Uh, how do you get people who you don't know uh, to give you money um, for something that you know doesn't obviously seem like it could make money? Um, when is something too good to be true? Um, and uh, how do you discern um, that that is what is happening here? So the, we start off with Charles Ponzi uh, in part because it's a really fascinating story in and of itself, but it also allows allowed me in the book to introduce some of these key ideas that we see over and over and over again in faith-based frauds that follow. And in that respect, uh, Bernie Madoff uh, from the Jewish perspective, the Jewish community, and then John Bennett and the New Era Foundation uh, scandal from the, I think the 1990s, uh, the, the evangelical yep. version. Isn't that one way that they uh, kind of um, gave their own credibility uh, was they sounded like, if you will, true believers? Well, that's exactly right. And uh, John Bennett in particular, John Bennett really came out of this uh, evangelical milieu that, in fact, I consider myself uh, to be a part of. I mean, he was uh, he was not fringy like, say, for example, a Jim and Tammy Baker were or, um, you know, some of the guys that, that I also write about, uh, Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or Creflo Dollar. I mean, these guys um, um, are kind of theologically on the fringe in addition to being financial. Uh, on the fringe as well. But John Bennett wasn't. John Bennett was, um, you know, worked with um, very well-known evangelical institutions, Wheaton College, Spring Arbor College. Um, just, you know, I could go on and on just naming the uh, a Covenant College uh, in Georgia, which is a well-known PCA college now. And, um, you know, these were all organizations that had, um, uh, that are not 
used to being swindled. And John Bennett was able to infiltrate his way into those organizations. And as I said, that, that he ended up um, swindling organizations of pretty close to $500 million. Some of those funds were ultimately returned to the organization. So I think that the total damage was significantly less than $500 million, somewhere between $100 and $150 million. But it was still a tremendous amount of damage done uh, within that organization. And I'm wondering, going to the title of your book, Faith-Based Fraud, and this, the New Era Foundation scandal, which happened in the 1990s, I'm wondering if, is it one aspect of these things, as you say, affinity, they, he, he was a, an evangelical Christian appealing to evangelical Christians, double your money in six months if you invest it with me, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. But there was also that element of uh, major ministries signing on to it and then telling other major ministries. Wasn't there that sense of reference or recommendation that, well, it, it, it worked for them? Well, that's exactly right, Bill. In fact, you've you've hit on an on an issue that um, I'll just brief uh, briefly mention. But you know, we can talk about more if you want to. But uh, you know, I mentioned that this idea of trust, this idea of trust, is so important. You gotta you gotta somehow figure out a way to build trust with someone if you're gonna if you're gonna defraud them, if you're gonna swindle them. It's kind of ironic, but that's exactly what you have to do. That, typically, there are two ways that we build trust with somebody. One is what I call in the book earned trust, where I actually do things for you, Bill, uh, for example, that cause you to start trusting me. And, um, you know, I might say, for example, hey, Bill, let's, um, you know, let's get together for lunch one day. And you're, you might say, okay, great, I'd love to get together for lunch. But my trust, goes, your trust in me goes up if I follow that up with an email and say, hey, Bill, I'm available on these dates at this time. Which date works for you? And then whenever I go to that lunch with you, if, you know, we have a meaningful conversation. And especially if I pick up the tab, all of a sudden your goodwill, your level of trust in me has gone up, whether you know it or not. I call that earned trust. There's another kind of trust called imputed trust. And imputed trust is what happens whenever you trust the recommendation of others. And that's exactly what someone like a John Bennett would do is that, you know, he would, because of his relationships within the evangelical world, he would then go to some Someone like you, Bill, and say, hey, I'm good friends with Warren Smith. If you like Warren Smith, you know, talk to him. He'll tell you about me. And so, Bill, because you and I have this relationship, you might be more inclined to trust John, even though really John hasn't earned his trust with you yet in the same way that maybe I have earned my trust with you by repeated interactions. So this earned trust versus imputed trust is a vital concept in faith-based fraud. And the best frauds are those that have figured out how to build trust without actually earning it. And um, that's why, in some ways, they are so dangerous. Warren, I'm wondering, is it possible to generalize um, factors that lead to these people? As you mentioned, uh, somebody like a Jim Baker and, and the others, they don't wake up one day and decide, uh, I'm, I'm going to begin uh, initiating a faith-based fraud. I believe so, maybe somebody does that. But but what, what are some of the factors that lead people to, uh, and I realize you may have touched on it to some extent, but lead them to 
uh, to go down this road that leads to these problems. I think that's really the the reason I wrote the book. I mean, I think these stories are fascinating, and even the few that I've mentioned. Hopefully, Bill, you think that, and your listeners think that as well. Um, and but but you know, the real reason I wrote the book was not just to tell a good yarn, a good story, uh, so to speak, but to, but to really give people some some tools that they can use to keep these frauds from showing up in their churches and the ministries that they give to, and, you know, and, and for that matter, in our own lives. I mean, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We're all, those of us who are Christians, sinners saved by grace. And um, so, you know, we need hedges of protection uh, built around us, uh, even those of us who are redeemed, uh, to keep us from you know, from sort of from falling into error and and in doing things that, as the Apostle Paul says, we ought not to do, and that we don't want to do even, but we do them anyway. And I think some of those um, things to look for, some of these common denominators, as you said, are you know, is there transparency? If somebody, for example, comes to you with a scheme that um, has, um, in the book, I call it a black box. Now, in the case, for example, of John Bennett in New Era Philanthropy, his black box or his secret was that he supposedly had some very wealthy anonymous donors that would match the money that other donors gave. and But he wouldn't tell people who those donors were. And so there was a level of secrecy involved in the John Bennett case. Um, in the case of Bernie Madoff, there was also this black box of investment instruments that Bernie Madoff would tell his investors that, you know, he had this special proprietary algorithm that he used to produce the investment returns that uh, he had. But he couldn't share what that was because if he did, he would lose his competitive advantage. You should run from anyone uh, who wants to keep a secret from you, that there should be complete and utter transparency, especially in the ministry world, when it comes to the use of funds, where money's coming from and where it's going, there should be no secrets. So that's number one, is is there complete transparency or is there some sort of a black box or sort of secret proprietary information that the organization or the individual doesn't want to share? Number two, uh, you know, would be, are there systems of accountability built in? We, I keep mentioning accountability and transparency, but it really does keep coming back to that, Bill. It's that, you know, um, does the person that's in charge or the people that are in charge have other people who are independent uh, looking over their shoulders to make sure that they're doing the right things? In the case of a Christian ministry, um, there should be an independent board of directors. They should be getting annual audits. They should be members of the Evangelical Council for Financial accountability uh, if if they qualify. There, there are some reasons not to be members of the ECFA, and I'm actually in the book at times critical of the ECFA because I don't think that they are the perfect solution. So, th- you know, I could, I could go on, but these are just three real quick examples, transparency, uh, accountability, or maybe more than three, an independent audit, an independent board of directors, and membership in the ECFA that I would look for if I'm a donor before I would give money to a ministry that I don't know. And I think our, and by that, I mean our individual churches, the churches that we go to, I think are those have the first 
um, dibs, if you will, on our money. But if I'm involved in a local church, I should know these things about my own local church. I would say that at least in some cases, these things should be true of our local church as well. You should get a budget from your elders or deacons. Uh, You should know um, how much your senior leadership make. I, um, I know that there are some people that are uncomfortable with that idea. I'm not uncomfortable with that idea, and I'm an advocate for complete transparency, even when it comes to the salaries of the senior leadership. You've been listening to my interview with Bill Feltner of the Pilgrim Radio Network as we've discussed Ministry Watch's new book called Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. Many thanks to Bill and the Pilgrim Radio Network for permission to use that interview here on the Ministry Watch podcast. And a reminder that Faith-Based Fraud is now available at Amazon and other online retailers. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosell and Steve Gandy. We get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.